Hi, my name is Matt Fernley, editor of Battery Materials Review, and here's all the key news in the world of battery materials this month. Welcome to November's edition of Recharge, the podcast by Battery Materials Review. I am delighted to welcome my co-presenter, Cormac O'Lara, MD of Electrios Energy, and we're going to run through some of the key talking points from the last month. Hi, Cormac. How are you doing? Hi, Matt. Can't believe it. It's uh, first like we're just in January 2023, and, and now we're rounding up the year and seeing if our predictions are right, right? So uh, <laughs> that's next month. I'm, uh, I'm not looking yeah, forward to that. Yeah, there yeah. have been a few, uh, a few egg on the face. This year. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I'm not sure I'm going to get to my 15 million. Yeah, I um, yeah, not not looking forward to uh, to going over the prediction, shall we say? But yeah, um, yeah. it certainly has kept us on our feet this year. Um, cool. Okay. Well. Um, Pretty interesting month uh, over the last four or five weeks. Um, in October, we saw a lot of the reporting periods for the raw material producers and the cell manufacturers and the EV manufacturers. So there's quite a few talking points from them. Um, maybe uh, should we start in um, in China and on the cell manufacturing side of the business? What what, what are you seeing there? Yeah, um, well, Technically, a good month for cell manufacturing, uh, but um, it was r- flat on October. So about s- October was seventy-seven gigawatts, and um, and uh, September seventy-seven gigawatts. So a um, bit of a, a stall there, as um, obviously as we see some of the factories um, but entering it's the into national day holidays in October, isn't it? So there, there'll yeah, be some shutdowns. We had the golden week, and uh, well, yeah. So we're expecting to see uh, a little bit more pickup on the EV and sales uh, and uh, lithium and the production, battery production in November. Mm. But uh, I mean, it's really interesting because, you know, a lot of commentators have been saying, oh, yeah, well, we're expecting a slowdown in November. Um, But those same commentators have been really expecting a slowdown since July and we haven't seen it yet. You know, um, production sales are up year on year. They've been up month on month most of those months as well. So um you know there's a lot of doom and gloom in the industry at the moment but not necessarily justified i don't think yeah yeah it's a, a number of changes in the chinese battery production sector we see catl really making a lot of moves in the last thir- third quarter signing massive uh battery offtakes with both energy storage companies and uh, and EV companies. A lot of the EV offtakes were based on um, their Shenzhen uh, battery that they uh, released in September, which mm. is the 4C quick charge and uh, uh, long range um, battery pack. And it's caught the interest of many EV makers, especially okay. in China. Because that's really interesting because CATL in their Q3 results um, and in their Q2 results, analysts were implying that their capacity utilization was down uh, for this quarter compared to the last quarter. And of course, their capacity utilization in the in the first half wasn't high anyway. I mean, it was around about sort of 60 odd percent. So is is that going to win them back market share? Because I think they've been losing market share to some of the sort of second yeah. or third tier cell makers in the last couple of quarters. Yeah. Um 
Well, their market share went up uh, this month, uh, so it went up to forty-two percent from thirty-nine in, in China. But um, yeah, these offtakes are five-year period, and yeah, their capacity utilization hasn't been uh, great. Uh, but as you know, they're building a lot of their capacity. Uh, their sixty gigawatt hour factory just came online this month, also. So mm. as you add capacity. Of course, name pay capacity, uh, utilization utilization rate drops as you're filling backfilling your orders. So yeah. again, it's based on the future. But yeah, traditionally, CATL have op- operated utilizations hovered between sixty to seventy percent. Right. Okay. Okay. And I mean, I guess if we look at the the rest of the sort of cell maker space, it's yeah. been pretty tough um, for the tier one cell makers in 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 Q three. I mean, obviously, prices have been down because, to some extent, raw material prices have been down. So uh, it's not like we've seen a you know a huge amount of margin erosion, but we're certainly seeing it being slightly more difficult to perform than I think analysts have expected. And you know, a number of the cell makers have disappointed analyst estimates on on Q3 revenues and and Q3 profitability. Um, and I, you know, when you look at LG Energy Solutions. I uh, was one of the few cell makers to to beat, but they effectively only beat on IRA tax credits. And if you strip yeah. the tax credits out, uh, um, it was a miss in line with with a lot of what we've seen in the sector. So it's clearly getting a little bit more difficult to operate in the cell maker sector, given as they are stuck between the rock of the the OEMs and and the hard place of the sort of raw material producers. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um... Yeah, it's as you've seen a lot of the Q3 reports, uh, especially in China. It's a lot of uh, negativity, um, which is based on a lot of what's happened during the year in terms of um, uh, um, uh, battery inventory, for example. We've seen like some crazy numbers in terms of uh, in China in terms of uh, battery prices. I've mm. seen uh, reported. Unconfirmed, uh, like forty USD per kilowatt hour for uh, prismatic um, uh, LFP. Uh, LFP, yeah, yeah, uh, and so uh, it's kind of like a what we saw with the EVs, uh, the price cutting um, competition. Uh, mm. We've seen something similar towards the back end of uh, of this year in terms of trying to shift inventory because you know batteries are quite similar to fruit. You can't have them sitting sitting on the uh, sh- shelf for a long long time. So you okay, but on. I'm glad you uh, didn't go all the way in that one. But yeah, you can't have them sitting on the shelf. For a long time. <laughs> yeah, but uh, yeah, okay. And and I think probably this sort of you know this whole battery inventory system um, situation sort of comes back to to something that sort of worries me a little bit. That supposedly we have very very strong ESS demand for for sales out of China. Um, this year, but but if we have, why are battery inventories, you know, at such an, an elevated level, and 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 why haven't we seen, you know, a restocking cycle in in lithium and sort of raw materials demand? There's something that sort of seems to disconnect there um, between supposedly extremely strong ESS installation growth yeah. and the fact that the sort of mid to downstream it is not is not that robust um and I, I guess it's i mean do you have any insights into that yeah um 
Well, uh, technically, uh, EV LFP cell prismatic is not designed for ESS. So mm-hmm. um, there's a difference in cell uh, difference in cells. You really there at this stage. Earlier in, in the industry, they were transferable, but at this stage, they're not transferable. Uh, the ESS cells tend to be a lot bigger than the um, EV cells. EV cells are, uh, in, in terms of prismatic, are about a 100 amp hour, where ESS cells are growing gigantic this year we're the we're seeing a move to greater than 300 amp hour um ess cells as opposed mm-hmm. to the uh 280 amp hour that uh, ch had a lot of success with and we've seen uh, other cell producers produce up to 500 amp hours these are gigantic cells made directly for the um energy storage sector um mm-hmm. so the inventory from the ES uh, from the ev um manufacturers can uh, cannot be transferred to the right. ess um and again, the uh, EV sector still is a lot greater than the ESS at the moment. So like this month, um, um, so for the year so far, China have exported over 100 uh, gigawatt hours of EV batteries and about 15 gigawatt hours of ESS batteries. So still still uh, quite a small sector compared to EV. Right. Okay, um, and and but I mean, obviously, if ESS is going ballistic, you would expect to see some sort of impact on 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 raw material demand. Um, we haven't really seen that, so is there some sort of lag between when the sort of ESS demand is recorded and when the ESS cell output is recorded because you know if i look at the cell output numbers for ess it went ballistic in the first half of the year but it's actually been sort of flat to down since then um so so you're aware of anything like that in there well you know um there there is uh the standard building now but prior to 2022 there was no ess specific uh gigafactory now we see the likes of uh like hai chen for example specifically build ESS um, gigafactories, but um, they're still not, full, still not at full capacity because they're not traditional battery makers. Um, so as we see the ESS dedicated uh, gigafactories come online, I, I would say we'll see, uh, yeah, I would say uh, ESS cells would have uh, impact on the, uh, for example, lithium carbonate demand, as, as we know, these cells more more likely will be LFP based, so yeah. um, uh, won't affect nickel or cobalt that much. Yeah. Okay. Okay. That's sorry. That's very good. Um, we obviously didn't talk about graphite um, here. Uh, we talked a little bit about it last month. There's a, a big focus article in uh, in Battery Materials Review this month about graphite um, and, and my thoughts, what the outlook is for um, uh, the Western world. Uh, graphite developers uh, and 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 newsflash not exactly going to surprise everyone but um, this is a, a really key area for the industry I mean you can't make a lithium-ion cell without graphite uh, and I think what's happened has to be you know an early warning to the industry that it's got to start making capital available to the graphite sector so uh, we go into our thinking in more detail on that in battery materials review this month um, a couple of sort of really quite interesting news uh, news flow points from um, the rest of the upstream. Uh, Transport and Environment, which is a European think tank, has got a very interesting study out on, on the nickel industry. 
um, and really it's flagging how um, carbon intensive effectively the Indonesian nickel industry is compared to um, the rest of the industry. Um, two to three times more carbon intensive than the industry average and five to six times more carbon intensive um, than sulfide projects in in Canada or Brazil would be. And you do sort of sit here and wonder why, oh, why are European and US OEMs investing in this high carbon intensity? And by the way, carbon intensity is not the only thing we have to worry about, um, but high carbon intensity, Indonesian nickel, uh, where we see, you know, huge rainforest destruction, where we see um, storage of uh, dry tailings onshore, very close to coastal areas in a high rainfall and seismically active area. You know, where do the, the European and OEMs, uh, European and US OEMs, which supposedly, uh, you know, are looking at ESG, where do they get off investing in these projects and sourcing material from these projects? Yeah, interesting point. Um, I do notice that, um, you know, that the carbon intensity basically revolves around the RKF uh, pyro uh, method for making. Well, it's not just that. that. I mean, the H power method as well, which produces sort of uh, mixed hydroxide product, yeah, um, or or can produce pure nickel, is also, you know, m more carbon intensive than the industry average. And of course, Indonesia with seventy percent hydropower now, fine. You know, a lot of these projects are starting to talk about um, building solar. Yeah. Um, solar power sources to support them, but that's a you know four or five year yeah. uh, and longer uh, thematic, and it, it doesn't sort out the issues with waste management either, which are still pretty substantial. And I'm yeah. told if you look at a um, uh, a satellite picture for Indonesia, you can see the impact of this waste material around the coast. Um, and for me, you know, this is at least as dangerous as uh, from an environmental standpoint, as the social uh, impacts of producing cobalt in the DRC, but nobody's talking about it. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, it's it, again, it's, it's based on the success story of HPAL, right? Uh, not RKF um, are being phased out in Indonesia, right? So there's 30 odd refineries in Indonesia. There's another 60 in the in the pipeline. Most of them are HPAL. Um, so mm -hmm. that will take care of your not take care of, but uh, reduce your carbon in, in, footprint there. But the uh, the tailings is a big issue. I mean, originally, as you're probably aware, discussions it was going to be deep sea tailings, and yeah. um, and and that was reversed by the Indonesian government. Uh, and as you highlight there, Indonesia is not a great place to build tailing dams or to dry stack just on the geographical location. Um, and I haven't seen these satellite images, but. I, I guess it's from runoff. Um, from, yeah. Um, yeah. From, uh, from, yeah. But, from runoff due to high rainfall. And of course, it is a, a high rainfall area. So, you know, I, I think this is a this is a big issue. And I, and I cannot believe that the auto OEMs uh, are not focusing on this in more detail um, because it seems very two-faced to focus on the social issues yeah. in the DRC, but but not talk about um, these huge environmental issues in Indonesia. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, you know, uh, 
I believe they're becoming aware. Right? The EU just sent a delegation to Africa this month um, in search of uh, critical raw materials and, and, and looking to sign deals. So they're um, they're on the ground in these countries now. I'm, I'm sure they've been to Indonesia as well. But um, you know, the main goal, uh, especially the CRMA Act, is secure raw materials. Um, but the interesting point is you can't recover you can't depend more than 65 percent of one material in one country so you know it, it, for nickel especially you, you you could be in excess of 65 percent well yes and and i mean what's what's really scary about this you know from the nickel point of view is there's brilliant nickel resources in canada in brazil um yeah. you know in other parts of the world and in fact you know some of the ones in 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 canada are actually carbon negative because um they fix carbon out it's of the atmosphere. Right? Um, so, uh, no, it, they're projects. They're projects. But but they would fix carbon out of the atmosphere. So, you know, you, you sort of look at it and you go, well, you know, I don't understand why these OEMs are not looking, one, to diversify their supply, but two, looking at, you know, environmentally friendly solutions uh, as well as um, these other solutions. Anyway. Yeah. Moving, well, moving, you know, just on that, the UK yeah. UK have issued license for deep sea um, or uh, studies for deep sea mining off uh, in the North Sea, right? Uh, this have month, they? Is, I haven't seen that. I yeah. um, I think that the the environmental lobby is very split on deep sea mining. Um, yeah, you know, there are major proponents of of deep sea mining. Uh, there are other people that are very doubtful about the environmental impacts uh, and my own thinking is that i don't think enough uh yeah. time has been spent on analyzing the environmental impacts i mean nobody really knows um uh, what will happen if you go in and, and destroy these deep sure. sea ecosystems over a long period of time and 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 how that can impact other areas um yeah. and i've seen you know i've been seen supportive um scientific papers and i've seen unsupportive scientific papers i don't think people really understand um the impact and you, you know to be fair at the moment at current nickel prices with the, the nickel supply as it, as it looks yeah. at the current time um there probably isn't the need to 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 look at it but uh it may become you know an area that needs to be focused on in the future yeah yeah, and um, according to the Indonesian government, they're running out of high-grade nickel in the, yes. in the next 10 years. But there's plenty of lower-grade nickel, so... Yeah, uh, right. <laughs> yeah, it sounds like it's going to be worse. Yeah. Okay, um, let's talk a little bit about um, mining royalties here, because I, I think this is a, something that's very important that perhaps people who uh, think about sort of long-term prices of materials are not really factoring in. Um, you tend to see mining royalties rise uh, into bull markets. And uh, yeah. a, a very good example of that is the uh, deal that Atlantic Lithium uh, negotiated for its Iwoya project in Ghana, uh, where Ghana's imposed a 10% royalty rate on the lithium uh, compared to the normal 5% royalty rate that it, that it imposes on gold projects. Now, 10% is pretty steep um and you know double i think what most royalty rates are around the world um and you know that's all very well when lithium prices are at five thousand dollars a ton 
Um, but when lithium prices are below $2,000 a ton and, and falling, I'm talking about spodumene concentrate here, um, then that tends to put quite a lot more pressure on profitability. And I think that, you know, people who look at the sector, investors, um, traders, have to be aware that if the rest of the world follows suit and imposes sort of 8 to 10% royalty rates on lithium, then that's increasing your cost of production quite considerably for, for hard rock. Um, and that then raises your cost curve and it raises your long-term price. So I think, um, you know, as a data point, um, this, this deal, um, is, is a very important potentially sign of things to come in the industry. You think, um, um, for both Western world and, um, sub-Saharan Africa, um, so like uh, Australia. Well, I mean, I know it? that, for instance, um, there there are lithium uh, assets in the U.S. I know the U.S. government is looking at uh, imposing a federal royalty uh, for lithium mining um, with changes to its previous sort of royalty regime. Um, you know, I know that some of the countries in Europe are, are looking at imposing royalties. I know, for instance, we pick up in, in this issue of the review that the Indian government has just introduced a royalty rate um on on lithium um there are no mines in production in lithium um in india rather um but but they have you know introduced a royalty rate i mean there's new mines opening up all over africa i'm sure those local african governments will want a way to cash in on this nascent industry and you know either even in western australia we haven't seen any uh speculation on royalty rates but i remember back to sort of um the last cycle and we didn't see any speculation on iron ore royalties and then suddenly they were raised by the western australian government so you know yeah. i wouldn't uh, i would never rule it out so i think you know I, I think it's just something to be aware of that royalty rates are on the rise a lot of yeah. other costs are on the rise as well capital costs are on the rise you know operating costs are on the rise or almost across the board and all of that adds together to mean that that you know the marginal cost of production in lithium and in fact in other materials is on the rise and i think that people need to be realistic about that uh and that sort of controls the level that prices can come down to in a, in a down cycle i think yeah yeah that is true it might uh set a limit so so to speak but um yeah not great news for the industry it's been a tough six months for the uh, lithium producers. Uh, yes, I mean, it, it, it really has been. I mean, you know, signs that things are starting to, um, <laughs> should we say bottom out now? Um, no, no, but no, certainly, no. you know, it, lithium inventories in China. Uh, went to a new low falling. today in China, 144 yeah. or 144,000 RMB. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, you know, lithium inventories in China seem to be bottoming out. Um, we... Um, certainly seen um yeah. you know that that happening over the last couple of weeks um if if demand for evs stays robust um then you know that's quite possible we get a restocking cycle um into the next two or three months or so but uh we obviously have to wait and see um before before uh, uh making you, any short-term how do you calls. see so this market lithium market is a little bit out of control uh 
how do you see how 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 these factors controlled in like say the copper or iron ore market where you don't see such big swings and less players perhaps involved? Um, um I think the thing with the char- the the copper and the iron ore market is those are bigger markets. So I mean, you know, the, the the iron ore market is a huge market. The steel industry globally is one of the biggest industries in the world. You know, the copper market is a big, big market. Lithium is still pretty small, and because it's pretty small, you tend to see bigger bigger price swings in small markets um always have done always will do um and you know obviously china is very much the center for the global lithium market um china is very much a trading market it's very much a short-term market um so and also if you look at the pricing structure of the lithium industry it's totally changed over the last 12 to 18 months so you know 18 months ago the bulk of of lithium coming out of Latin America was on long-term contracts, annual pricing contracts, um, and that dominated. Whereas yeah. now, you, it's the hard rock supply out of Western Australia that dominates, and and that's on quarterly, if not spot contracts. China's producing a lot more lithium domestically from lapidolite, uh, and that's on probably spot contracts um you know china's producing brine domestically it has its own spodumene resources so china domestic production which is probably trading on spot is a much higher percentage of highs and of yeah. course on top of that you've got all of these financial contracts as well uh, which may not be physically settled but are providing a price point for the industry and and some of these are you know have got massive volatility um so you know, the, the situation in lithium is very, um, it's quite different to the situation that we see in other more commodity type products. Um, and it's much more volatile um, than than you would see in those products. Yeah. Yeah, it makes sense. Seems like uh, daddy's not in the room for the lithium market, can I? <laughs> yeah, dad, daddy needs to to turn around and uh, and tell people to calm it down. I mean, I I think that you know moving to a sort of uh, a day to day pricing structure is not necessarily a good thing for the lithium market. And you know we're gonna we're gonna see that now. I mean, obviously the producers move from annual to quarterly contracts because they wanted to see more of the upside price moves um, realized for their production um of course that's come around to bite them on the backside as the markets move down um and now we see the consumers wanting to move to shorter term contracts monthly contracts in many cases uh as the prices has moved down and this is particularly an issue for the um uh, converters the lithium hydroxide lithium carbonate converters pushing the producers to move to uh, shorter term contracts. And of course, that's great in the falling market. But how will they like that in a rising market? Um, and I, my answer would probably be not very much. So I think the industry is going to need to come to an equilibrium, yeah. um, whether that's monthly contracts, whether that's quarterly contracts, uh, I don't know. Um, but I think that, uh, you know, it's hurting the producers as prices move down um and it may very well hurt the consumers as prices move up so um the industry will hopefully sort of sort itself out but i think you know what a lot of people forget of, of course is this is a really young industry i mean the ev industry the cell industry the lithium industry on this scale 
this is a really young and immature industry. So we're kind of we're kind of finding our own solutions in the public eye, as it were. Uh, unlike most industries, which sort of sort themselves out before they come on people's radar screens and investors' radar screens. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Okay. Uh, just a, one more piece of of news flow, really, just to focus on um, this month, which is um, the slightly uh, disappointing news from a number of OEMs that they're slowing their rollouts of uh, electric vehicles. We saw yeah. um, Ford walking away from some of its investments uh, in the US and and uh, GM also, uh, and then more latterly outside the US as well. I think the Turkish plant now has been That's right. yeah. abandoned. Um, any thoughts on that? Yeah, well, again, VW as well, uh, kind of hitting the pause button on um, site selection. First of all, in Eastern Europe, they were looking at Czech Republic. I think that is and not a cancellation, but a pause button. So yeah, we're seeing, especially the Koreans, uh, LG has uh, paused uh, some of their factory build-outs, some of the copper factories, uh, foil factories are hitting pause. Yeah. So um, yeah, yeah, it's, uh, uh, you know, this I mean, is kind I think of, it's this important is like to say hangover. that it's a pause, not a cancellation. Yeah, it's like a hangover, I think, yeah. from the uh, IRA. Most of this is around the, yeah. uh, the players who are heavily reliant on the IRA. Yeah. And of course, you know, we did see, I mean, if you look at the the data that we publish every month in BMR, we did see a huge amount of um, cell factory announcements. And, you know, if I look at our uh, cell demand numbers versus the announced capacity of cell factories, I mean, we're talking about maybe a 50% oversupply in cell capacity by 2030. So, you know, I, I don't think a lot of these cell factories that have been announced are actually, you know, going to be necessary um, yeah. by 2030. Um, so maybe this provides the opportunity for OEMs, for cell makers to just think, well, actually, you know, maybe we slow down our rollouts a little bit. You know, I, I, I pointed it out in uh, my uh, LinkedIn post during the week about um, Chinese battery production. All these big players that we we've come to learn of over the last three or four years, Goshen, EV, Asphalt, or EPT, you know, now seen in the eyes as state-of-the-art quality battery producers. These guys are just beginning to touch gigawatt monthly production or slightly over gigawatt hour production. It just mm -hmm. shows you how hard it is to get there for these players uh, who uh, who also have JVs with the uh, auto uh, uh, EV makers. Um, some are really well financed, but uh, and have integrated up and downstream, and they are having difficulties reaching gigawatt hour production capacity. So the factories you highlight the over fifty percent capacity uh, over capacity. These guys have never made a sell before, and I just imagine the hurdles and difficulties they're going to encounter over the next five years. If established, yeah. well-regarded names are are not in, you know, uh, high gigawatt hour production capacity yet. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it definitely, I mean, it, it emphasizes how difficult this industry is. Um, you know, I think that there's a perception out there for, among investors that, you know, you announce the cell capacity, it's going to come on in two years and it comes on in two years. And it's it's just not like that. I mean, it takes a long time to get these plants, you know, producing to spec uh, on a yeah. consistent basis. Um, it's more difficult for ternary batteries than it is for LFP by by a long distance, by the way. Um, 
And, you know, it can take years. I mean, we saw with the the Panasonic Giga One, um, it took years um, to get from first production to, um, you know, consistent battery yields. Um, and, you know, that that's that's for a company that have been producing batteries and cells for some time. So, uh, yeah, I, I think there's a lack of understanding in the industry about or, or rather outside the industry about how difficult this industry is um, and, and how obviously capital intensive as well. Yeah. Yeah. A good example is uh, LG Chem, RLG Energy Solutions are building a 21700 gigafactory in Arizona. Do you remember 21700 when it was involved? Yeah, yeah, the, the old 21700. Yeah, yeah. Now, now they're changing the whole factory, build out to 4680, or uh, a variant of. Mm. So even if you build a factory, innovations are just coming uh, you know, every six months, and mm. you got to be able to um, turn to whatever the the demands of the EV makers aren't they? They didn't want twenty one seven hundred connect and, and, and startups. That, raises, that raises a really interesting question. I mean, what's involved with changing the format, the architecture, or even changing the chemistry in a cell factory? I mean, can you retrofit the equipment, or do you have to rip the equipment out and bring in new equipment? Um, most likely, start again. Tear, tear up the page. Tear, so the only the only thing you're keeping really is the building. Everything the else building, has to maybe come out. the mixers, the mm. front front stage mixing the uh, cathode materials. Uh, but yeah, your coder, you're gonna have wider electrodes. You know some, you know you um, so wider foil might be for forty six eighty for example. Um, your formation might have to be changed as well. So you, uh, so that's the end of the line where uh, you form it. Activate the cells. Um, uh, I think that one would have to be changed. Yeah, many. You, you you might as well tear up the script, right? But and also uh, when you because I think that's a really important thing when you consider different chemistries coming through, because if you look at the sunk cost of all of this lithium iron cell manufacturing capacity that is in production or close to coming into production, and people talk about you know, for instance, solid state coming through. Now, you know, we can talk about solid state coming through till we're blue in the face. But at the end of the day, if you're going to bring in solid state, presumably all of that sunk investment in lithium iron capacity goes out the window. Yeah, yeah. Um... I mean, if you want to convert to all solid state factories, um, you're basically left with just the building. And you have to start again in terms of what's in the factory. Basically. Yeah, you're going to be chucking out all the 4680 uh, equipment. You know, it's most likely going to be in pouch form. If it does come online, maybe you could do it in prismatic, yeah. but more than likely, all we've seen thus far is pouch form anyway. Um, so, yeah. Um, so, I mean, I, I think that that talks to, you know, how easy it's going to be for instance, to bring in new developers in the industry, things like solid state. I mean, you know, companies will have dropped, what, 50, 100 billion in terms of investments in lithium yeah. iron. I mean, they're not going to want to write that off. Um, so I, I, I think that, well, you know, people they, they being, might have a good chance, right? Let's say yeah. factory lifetime, 20 years. Um, it's going to take another 20 years for uh, solid state to come in, let's say. Full yeah. production take over, so 
yeah. to get the investments in now, you might get some money back. But um, where was I going? <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, so, uh, yeah. Toyota announced again that they'll like to do every every couple of months that they're closer and closer to having their own solid state. But, you know, they have been an investor from day one, uh, yeah. our developer of solid state. Um, yeah. But the, well, and I understand that, that what they're talking about rolling out is kind of more a so- semi-solid state than an actual pure solid state. Uh, well, that's that's a debate. Uh, they're going to market it as a solid state, all the semi-solid uh, market as solid. Um, and then you have to weed into it, uh, get into the weeds a little bit. But, um, you know, semi-solid, there's many players in that game already. Um, I think most notably would be Prolegium going into um, Dunkirk in uh, northern France. So, uh, and then we have, obviously, Blue Solutions in France as well. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so there's uh, purists in the field uh, that solid state means no gel, no polymer, like a piece of glass, basically. Yeah. Call me a purist. <laughs> <laughs> okay, great. Well, on that revelation, uh, and who would have thunk it, uh, I'll uh, I'll call it a day there. I'll say um, thanks very much to Cormac, and we'll look forward to, well, maybe I won't look forward to talking next month, and uh, we'll do- dissect all the mistakes we made yeah, this year. You put your neck on the line, Matt. You put yeah. your neck out there. <laughs> yeah, okay. Thanks a lot, Cormac. Right. Cheers, Pat. Uh, so that brings us to the end of our podcast for November. As always, you can get more detail on any of the topics we've discussed and indeed many more that we don't have time to discuss on a monthly basis in the latest issue of Battery Materials Review, which you can find at www.batterymaterialsreview.com. I'm Matt Fernley, editor of Battery Materials Review, and this has been Recharge. Thanks for listening.